I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. High crimes and misdemeanors. Whoever chose those words to define what constitutes legitimate grounds for impeachment of a president left them purposely vague. As such, the line between political and judicial is forever blurred. What constitutes a high crime and misdemeanor may vary by cultural age in which the accused is put on trial. The point is, there is no purely objective definition. In this moment, it does seem obvious that the charges against President Trump, including encouraging other countries to meddle in our democratic process and the ongoing cover-up, appear to be pretty obviously high crimes and misdemeanors. So as of today, there's this great impeachment spectacle, which is fabulous theater for the commercial-dependent 24-7 mainstream media, And chances are, if you're listening to this program, you agree. Ejecting Trump from from power is essential if our Republican form of government, our democracy, is to survive. But what today's Keeping Democracy Alive is about is looking beyond this moment and putting Donald Trump's impeachment in what may be its proper context. Our returning guest today is Andrew Bezovich, who has written a worthy, thought-provoking piece on Tom Dispatch titled, the Real Cover-Up. Andrew Basevich, thanks again for being with us and keeping democracy alive. I'm glad to be with you. Basevich is president and co-founder of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. <laughs> what a concept. Basevich is an American historian specializing in international relations, security studies, American foreign policy, and American diplomatic and military history. He's a professor emeritus of international relations and history at the Boston University Frederick Pardee School of Global Studies. His new book, The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory, is due to be published in January. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And most on the left, meaning virtually everybody who is not a cheering Trumpist, right-wing, racist, authoritarian, now feels like, as you say, uh, like at last we're closing in for the kill. But you write, from the time Donald Trump uh, was elected, American elites have hungered for this moment. At long last, they have the 45th president of the United States cornered, end of your quote. Does that statement not give aid and comfort to those defending the orange one who have long insisted the real goal of Democrats with this impeachment stuff is not to defend justice, but to simply undo the 2016 election. Well, I mean, uh, the the claim of the pro-Trump supporters on that score is not entirely without merit. Uh, you know, in that in that book of mine that you referenced a second ago, that is now yet, but it will be in January. I spent some time uh, talking about the immediate response, the day of, day after response, 
Trump's election. And it was already hysterical. I mean, there was no, there was no willingness even to say, well, let's, you know, let, let's give this guy a couple of weeks and, and see how he turns out. It was an instantaneous determination to go into opposition and to somehow try to make this guy go away. Now, let me emphasize, he, he is totally unqualified uh, to serve as president, and he's uh, you know, a bumbling narcissist. All the bad things, all the bad words that uh, others have uh, used to describe him, I would probably uh, second. But it's also true uh, that uh, he never got what we, what we might call uh, to be a fair chance. And I think the problem with that, on the one hand, it's understandable. Uh, but the problem with that is that uh, after November of 2016, our politics instantly became so narrowed, so focused on on Trump uh, and what Trump says and what, what Trump is doing that many other things that are at, at least as important as Trump, I think, uh, kind of get, get lost, get, get go ignored. And that's really what the, the purpose of my Peace and Time Dispatch was to make that argument. Well, I've, I've known a few people, not that many, quite frankly, because you're right, people come down pretty much on one side or the other, or did, you know, right after the uh, uh, November 16 uh, election. But I know a few people who gave him a chance, a few independents, and I think everyone I know now says, I right, hey, we really gave him a chance. We did give him a chance, and wow, he is messing things up severely. But certainly... I can't disagree. I mean, there was the tremendous shock of the election. And, uh, yeah, there has been a significant energy from the old Democratic establishment to uh, resist from the day. But it's not just from it was not just from the old Democratic establishment. Uh, certainly the Republican Party, you know, the Republicans in Congress uh, rallied to uh, Trump. Yeah. Even those who during the run-up to the 2016 election had uh, had denounced him in strongest terms. You know, people like uh, Ted Cruz and uh, Marco yeah. Rubio For sure. made their peace uh, with the president uh, once, he, once he became president. But there were others who are on the ride, not necessarily office holders, uh, but writers, intellectuals, who identify as conservative, who from from the moment of his election, uh, were in the passionately in the anti-Trump camp. So it's not the opposition hasn't certainly the the opposition is strongest on the left, uh, but there has been opposition on the right, although it ends up being concealed by the fact that so many Republican members of Congress have you know uh, turned out to be spineless toadies. Yeah. They certainly have. And it's, you know, it. we saw what Trump was a bully before the election. I think of that debate night when he uh, basically stalked the Democratic uh, nominee on stage there. And, uh, you know, it's not been without some sense and, and rationality that, that from the moment he was elected, and he was fairly elected. Let's, you know, put that aside. The Russians tried, but they didn't do it by themselves. You know, I think it was more of an anti-Hillary election than a pro-Trump election. But in any event, he won. He is president. And Trump's staunchest defenders 
actually see him as sent by God. I am not kidding. You know that. A lot of people know that. There's a poster that, that the campaign is actually selling featuring a Superman like Trump with fist raised as a lone, much-attacked, fighting savior keeping America great. And your essay looks back 100 years to President Woodrow Wilson in 1919 saying, The stage is set, the destiny disclosed. It has come about by no plan of our conceiving, but by the hand of God. That was about his near religious certainty of the righteousness of his vision for the world after the Great War. Didn't quite work out that way. Uh, And from that you reflect that it now concerns a mafia-like shakedown orchestrated by one of Wilson's successors tells us something about the trajectory of American politics over the course of the last century, and it has not been a story of ascent, end of your quote. But Wilson was somewhat unique, was he not, in terms of his absolute self-certainty and and moral zeal? Has that near-evangelical zealotry not risen and fallen since then? I mean, Trump's as he said, great and unmatched wisdom is what Stephen Colbert calls his full God emperor stance. Is that not only bizarre and unique, but kind of uniquely dangerous, requiring removal from office? It's bizarre, but I don't know if it's as unique as you're uh, suggesting. There have been other presidents who have been very certain uh, that they are acting at the behest of God or Providence, let us recall sure. uh, George W. Bush's response to the 9-11 attacks. Uh, he's on the record uh, as having uh, confided to someone, I can't remember the quote or anything, in which, which Bush basically said, I think I've been put in this position at this particular moment because it's, it, it is God's will ah. uh, that I should be the president at this uh, juncture. Uh, so, so there are others who have seen themselves as instruments of history, of, of providence, of, of, of God. Uh, uh, you know, Trump's, partly I think because of Trump's extraordinary inability to use the English language uh, in, in, a, in a traditional sense. You know, his, his bombast and his propensity to shoot from the hip, uh, that he seems uh, so so unique in that respect. Uh, but he's not, he is not the first president who somehow imagines that he's been chosen by uh, great forces to, uh, to lead the nation or save the world. And it's interesting to learn a little bit about history that he's not that unique in that sense. That's one reason I asked you to be. Well, he's, been, he's, he's uniquely vulgar. You know, he's <laughs> he's uniquely <laughs> uh, again. I think there's there there will be interesting books written about his inability to use the language or or the way he uses the language in an attempt to communicate, but that in many respects his effort to communicate actually. Uh, impedes communication. I mean that that crazy tweet that you just uh, referenced, in which he, you know, self praises his own uh, uh, wisdom. Uh, you know, that's that's not the sort of thing that even Woodrow Wilson would have done. <laughs> um, but it's 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 part of the whole uh, Trump persona, and I, I do think, in in some respects, his inability to use the language in an effective way 
makes it more difficult for us as observers of the Trump phenomenon to really understand what's going on here. Because we, you know, on almost a daily basis, he says something or tweets something that is so outlandish that we, you know, we, we, we slap our foreheads and say, holy smokes, uh, what is this guy all about? And because we're having that kind of a conversation, we don't look, we don't search more deeply for, for what's actually going on. Oh, I mean, you know, this piece that you want to talk about, yeah. the, one of the points of the piece is to say, uh, we, we, in our obsession with Trump, uh, we overlook other uh, factors that are actually at least as important as, as Trump or even more important. And indeed, our conversation up to this point uh, is an example of that, because all we're doing is we're, we're talking about Trump. And that's what everybody does. All they want to do is talk about Trump. Uh, and therefore, uh, other subjects that I would suggest are of far greater importance yeah. uh, languish. I think you're absolutely right, and that's why I was bringing that up, because it seems to me, I mean, he is a a showman, a superb showman, and keeping at the center of attention, you know, requiring people to say, now what, now what, now what, it's, you're right, all about Trump, and I think he likes it, and absolutely right, there's a lot of issues that are just not being dealt with, and, you know, I don't know how much uh, Congress can walk and chew gum at the same time, as they say, you know, in terms of digging deeper into the impeachment process. I mean, we have gun problems, climate change problems, uh, economic huge inequity problems, and you know, Medicare, it's just not being dealt with. Well, that's correct. And I think, uh, I guess there's many reasons why that would be the case. But, uh, you know, there is, there is a national conversation and it's a national conversation that's, that tends to be shaped by the, the prestige media. I mean, they, they determine, they don't necessarily determine what's on the nation's agenda, but they sort of determine the pecking order yeah. of what's on that agenda. And, and as, if you read the Washington Post or the New York Times, or if you t- tune in CNN or MSNBC and any other, uh, or Fox News for that matter, uh, the only matter, the only issue that seems to matter is is Trump. Now, it is certainly true, you know, that there will be occasional reports about gun violence or climate change or uh, the, the who's getting left behind in our supposedly high-flying uh, economy. Mm-hmm. But those are afterthoughts. Uh, the, 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 the issue that gets pounded home uh, relentlessly uh, is the issue of Trump himself. Yeah, you're right. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And, folks, it is a heavy lift. We need your help on it. Our guest today is uh, Andrew Basevich, who uh, American historian uh, specializing in international relations, security studies, American foreign policy, military history. Uh, and we're talking about uh, a new article he's written on Tom Dispatch called The Real Cover-Up. Now, some of Trump's allies insist that the impeachment process is more political than judicial. It may be entirely political and not judicial. It's not, is it not kind of both? Well, I've seen that uh, statement claim made over and over again, uh, and I guess I don't even understand it. <laughs> I, think, I think you're right. 
that it is both uh, it, it it is it is this is a, a legal thing and it, it is a uh, a political thing. The 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 outcome, whatever it ends up being, I mean whether whether impeachment happens, whether this matter gets to the Senate or not, however the Senate that disposes of the matter, it, it's not going to be decided based on uh, evidence that is beyond the shadow of a doubt, uh, which is which is the uh, standard that typically applies in in some criminal matter. So certainly there are going to be political calculations that factor. I mean, let's face it, there is nothing that a politician does. I don't care what party they happen to be in. There is nothing that a politician does that is not influenced by political calculation. What does this mean to me, uh, given my ambitions to stay in office or to seek higher office? What does this what does this mean to the, the, to the supporters that I uh, rely on, yeah. to the people who provide money uh, for my campaign. Oh, so yeah. Those are all political calculations. And so at that level, of course, this is going to be an outcome that's going to be where, where politics are going to pervade the issue. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think it's simply political right. uh, because it, we, we, will, we will proceed with this matter uh, consistent with provisions of the United States Constitution, and that is the basic law of the land. It's not just that they sort of make it, make things up as no. they go along. Well, it's certainly, I, I, I can't help but think that if and when it does go to the Senate, the senators are, are going to look, which is going to help me, dumping Trump or sticking with him? I mean, that's going to be... Yeah, <laughs> the basis for deciding whether to convict or not. I think you know for sure. Well, you know, it has to be part of it. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it certainly happened with Nixon, and we have to uh, look at Nixon. I mean, and Trump's allies say impeachment is divisive. Some Democrats say impeachment is divisive. Of course, it is, as was that of Nixon. You ask, what benefit is impeachment likely to yield? And you come up with four scenarios that describe the range of possibilities. The first possibility, which you say is the least likely, but I wonder, is that the president will, as you say, tire of being a public pinata and just quit. Uh, Yeah, some people think that's likely. I don't think so. Trump has always been not just about self-aggrandizement, but entertaining the masses. The ratings, he loves the ratings, large audience. My sense is his audience is also tiring of his performance. What leads you to think this outcome, that, that he would you know, tire of being a public pinata and just quit, what leads you to think that this is so unlikely? Well, I, I, uh, I mean, let's face it, we're all just sort of uh, playing games and, and guessing here. But I'm not sure that he actually dislikes being a public piñata. <laughs> I mean, to the extent that he is an egomaniac, and he certainly is, oh, yeah. being being the headline every day, you know, being the number one story every day, even though he has this criticism heaped on him, in some weird way, uh, he may take some kind of a some pleasure in that. Uh, you know, he is he is the most famous man on the planet. Yeah. 
he is the most famous man of our times. And so, I mean, I, I, would, <laughs> I would not enjoy being sub- subjected to the kind of criticism that, that he gets day after day, but he, he may, and that's why my guess would be, I mean, I don't know yeah, the man, uh, you know, we're, we are observing him from afar, yeah. uh, but my guess is that although a, a rational case can be made for saying, oh, the hell with it, I'm just going to leave office and go back to Mar- Mar-a-Lago and, and, and play golf, uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but it's a possible scenario. Well, that's that's rationality there. What does that have to do with it? And I think you're right. He just he abs he craves being the center of attention. We've seen him. I, I remember when he was. Uh, I believe he pushed aside uh, the president to some. Uh, I forget which European country, just to be out front. I mean, he's got that Mussolini, you know, sticking his chin out. He's got to be the center of attention. It's a little weird. The second possible outcome that you mentioned out of four is that. Quote, a sufficient number of Republican senators rediscover their moral compass and do the right thing. I sense some very few Republicans might be at least a little interested in listening to their consciences, but perhaps actually caring about the Constitution and our status as a nation of laws. Your observation on this second potential? Well, I don't think it's likely either. <laughs> Because they're because they're politicians. I mean, I guess I have a very cynical view of of politics, uh, and, and and Lord knows that politicians of whatever party are uh, able in an instant to talk about uh, you know their ideals and their convictions and their you know fealty to the Constitution and the rule of law. Uh, but my sense is that uh, you were just suggesting when it comes right down to do, to behavior, to conduct, is that um, uh, it's other considerations that that, that come into view. Uh, now there there is appears to be uh, some minor movement among yes. Senate Republicans yes. uh, that may suggest that their blind uh, commitment, loyalty mm-hmm. to Trump, may be not as uh, you know, fixed uh, as as it appears, and and certainly if uh, if 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 Trump's own behavior continues to add to the case against him, uh, then perhaps uh, th- that will lead to uh, a greater number of senators suddenly discovering that the the right thing to do is for them to. Uh, support efforts to remove Trump from office. But we we certainly are not there yet. No, for sure. And, and I, I have to think back to, to Nixon and, and Watergate and all that. And I, I don't know, I, I, I get the sense that what is different about that, not just that it was in black and white and today we're in HD color, but that uh, the rule of law really was something that not just Democrats, not just those out to get the president, but that everybody didn't even question, I think. I, I don't know if, if you remember it as, as well as I might, but I got that sense that that the rule of law actually mattered to them, and they didn't even question it, and their dedication to the Constitution of the United States. Your, your thoughts on that? Well, I don't, I don't remember all the specifics. My, my sense is that, if I remember correctly, and I probably don't, 
the it, it was the the key sort of moment was when uh, Senator Barry Goldwater and I think it was Senator Hugh Scott who was the minority leader in the Senate. And Maybe there's a couple others too. Uh, that they went and called on the president, Nixon, and said, you've lost the Senate, uh, and therefore, if you remain in office and allow this thing to go forward, you are indeed going to be not only impeached but convicted. It's hard for us, you know, to claim to know what the motivation of those senators at the time happened to be, but my sense is that their calculation was at least influenced as, as much uh, by political concerns as by constitutional ones. That the Republican Party, if the Republican Party stayed with Nixon to the very end, then the Republican Party was going to take a drubbing. And the best way of limiting their losses in future elections was at that point to to turn on Nixon, and so they did. So. I don't know that people in those days were any more devoted to the rule of law Hmm. than they are today. But I do believe that whatever their devotion to the rule of law, that alone probably doesn't suffice to explain their behavior. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, most people, I think, you know, who are looking at this whole situation, you know, look at, well, there's Trump, but then there's all these Republicans who are just standing by, spineless, as as uh, as often been said, and, and just allowing this to happen. And that's that's very disturbing. I mean, maybe Democrats would do the same thing. I don't know. But uh, it, 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 this we've talked about two so far of the possible outcomes that you see, Andrew Basevich. The third possible outcome, Republicans in office, like Democrats, as we all know, appear to gauge everything they do by how it would affect their chances of being reelected. Trump, it seems to me, he's a unique character, although not entirely ahistoric. And certainly there's a lot of people, uh, you know, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. This, uh, you know, his, uh, the daughter of George Wallace, George Corley Wallace, uh, was saying that, yeah, Trump is more racist than her dad. That has been there for a long time time it's just been sort of the sewer cover has been on and now now it's out there but it does seem that trump is guided by cruelty he seems to love cruelty in foreign and immigration policy and in dealing with congress and he relies on fear and intimidation so incumbents have to balance fear of trump meaning facing well-funded primary challengers with taking a measure of public opinion in their state we're talking about the centers if it gets to the Senate, it won't be for, for a while. I don't think so. A lot can change. But I'll ask anyway, how do you expect it to play out in the Senate? We're looking at a crystal ball here. Well, I mean, it, it, I think that at the end of the day, uh, there will be the competing um, influences of you know, do the right thing for my country, uh, competing with how is this going to affect my chances for being reelected next time around? Uh, and I think you're right that, uh, you know, anybody who turns on Trump uh, will have the full wrath of Trump yeah. uh, on their heads. Right now, it appears that most Republicans don't want to 
experience that because they calculate that uh, Trump still has the capability to mobilize Republican voters against people who are not loyal to him. But that can change uh, as this story plays out. It could be uh, that the accumulation of evidence, and of course Trump contributes to the further accumulation of evidence, it could be that the accumulation of evidence will get to the point where a Republican senator or member of Congress will calculate that their chances for re-election actually are improved yeah. uh, by opposing the president. We're not there yet. No, we are not there. Uh, but um, I, I don't know how quickly all this is going to go, but I mean, uh, my guess is that this is a story that's going to unfold over weeks and maybe months. Uh, and so the political calculation of Republicans may change. Uh, and were that to happen, then conviction by the Senate after impeachment by the House could become po- uh, possible. But we ain't there yet. We ain't there yet. But as the New York Times has said, he seems to like self-impeach. And it's not part of the docket, if you will, but this uh, uh, abandoning our Kurdish allies uh, and you know uh, allowing uh, his buddy... Uh, the Turkish dictator Erdogan to uh, just attack these people—that's—that's that's, uh, I think uh, uh, provided some space, a little bit of space between Trump. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you know, but, uh, but that's not part the of Americans the... are going to pay enough attention to the history here. But this is not exactly the first time we've uh, oh yeah abandoned the Kurds. Uh, so so you know this is a uh, well. I'm curious the, what. The, uh, Trump, Trump's sins in that regard are not uh, are not unique. True. I'm just curious. It's a little bit off track here, but when other I know there've been other times we abandoned <laughs> the Kurds, but I I frankly don't remember. Seems like you might. When when else did we abandon the Kurds? What's well, an example is going to be at the time of Operation Desert Storm, uh, when George Herbert Walker Bush publicly publicly called upon Saddam's opponents within Iraq to rise up and overthrow him. And the Kurds did. A lot of uh, Shiite Iraqis also did. Uh-huh. Uh, and Saddam Hussein crushed those uprisings while the United States basically stood by and let it happen. Right, this is in the early uh, 90s, yeah. Uh, that is that is true, and there's been other, I mean, other instances throughout history of not just the Kurds, but, you know, various different forces we encourage and then just sort of ooh, walk away from, for sure. Well, that that's also happens to be the way the Vietnam War ended. Well, absolutely. Uh, we, we just, they were, uh, it went on too long. And so the point, the, point, the point there is that, you know, these expressions of horror right. uh, are either a product of people who have very short memories or are indeed informed by a, some element of hypocrisy. <laughs> now, if, if, we're, if, we're, if, if indeed uh, that kind of behavior uh, undermines U.S. credibility, right. we would have lost our credibility decades ago. Yeah, for uh, sure. 
Because the truth is that the United States, like any other great power in history, I think, mm-hmm. you know, it 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 it, it treats allies as uh, allies when they are useful. Yes. And when they are no longer useful, then they're they're cut loose. This this is this is a, an expression of the amorality of international politics. And what, it's what, also true that the Kurds are not fighting against ISIS because they like America. No, you know the, <laughs> the Kurds are the Kurds are doing what they're doing because they're pursuing their own particular interests, and their own interests are to try to maintain uh, and perhaps even enhance some level of autonomy yes. uh, in a region where all of the nations that host Kurds are. Anti-Kurd, yeah, you know, wish 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 to that they view the Kurds as a problem. They would like to have that problem go away, and that's that's why the Kurds, of course, are my facts may be a little bit wrong here, but sort of the largest ethnic group in the globe that, that does not have their own uh, mm-hmm. nation state. Well, I think perhaps that could have been solved exactly a hundred years ago in 1919 at Versailles. But it could have been, <laughs> but could when that great. Uh, that great idealist Woodrow Wilson was yeah. sure that he had a master plan for world peace, but it didn't work out then. Well, self determination for the winners. <laughs> that was pretty much <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here talking a little history, as I am want to do with uh, our guest, uh, Professor Andrew Basevich. We're talking about oh impeachment in history. The real cover up is his article on Tom Dispatch, which I encourage people to read. And we've gone through three of the fourth possible outcomes he uh, uh, suggests and urges us to ponder with regard to the impeachment process. You say the fourth of the four is the most probable and least attractive outcome. What is this fourth outcome? Well, the House impeaches and the Senate refuses to convict, and so uh, the effort to remove him from office uh, resolves nothing, and he remains president until November of 2020, and then the American people are allowed to render a a verdict on his presidency. That that seems to me to be the most likely uh, scenario. Again, nothing is certain here, lots of unknowns, Uh, but that's a scenario in which the country would have been put through an enormous, uh, you know, (laughs) uh, crisis. Uh, for not, uh, and of course there are some commentators, some some pro-Trump commentator commentators. I don't know if they know what they're talking about, hmm. uh, but who speculate that actually that scenario, you know, Trump impeached but not convicted, will serve Trump's political interests. Right. That, that will mobilize uh, his base. They'll turn out in huge numbers and reelect a guy. Yep. Again, I don't know. Right. Long way to go before we get there, um, but but that's also kind of a, a troubling prospect to contemplate. I guess the heck it is. I mean, you know, many uh, to my left uh, harshly criticized Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House, for dragging her feet on impeachment, allegedly. I frankly think her caution has proven to be exceptionally wise. It's a, as you say, it's a big gamble for Democrats in the House. You raise well, I think her caution has proved to be irrelevant at this point. Because if, if indeed she wished to avoid impeachment, Too late. Uh, it looks to me like events events are running away with with uh, 
uh, events are exceeding their her ability to control. Yeah, that's true, and I, I think she waited uh, wisely. Uh, but as you said, I think this is a good uh, uh, observation here that quote a black mark awarded by Congress might look like a gold star to the president's supporters. I mean, Congress is held in less esteem generally or often than than the president, so it could actually help him as you know if he's uh, go through the impeachment process and then is uh, not convicted in the Senate, which certainly at this point in time, looks like the likely outcome, but boy, one never knows for sure. Uh, you know, and and certainly. Well, and, and that's where McConnell uh, yeah. ends up being a crucial player. I, I I think I'm correct in saying that he is up for reelection in 2020. Oh yes, he is. He's, as I understand it, yes, he's he not is. a particularly popular figure uh, in his state. Uh, and so he has to pay close attention to how this impeachment crisis affects his own prospects for being reelected. Oh, for I sure. think uh, McConnell is a completely cynical uh, politician. And if he decides that abandoning the president will help him get elected to another term, he'll do it, he'll do it in a heartbeat. Yeah. If he decides that sticking with the president uh, will help him get elected to another term, then that's what what he'll do. But his his assessment of the situation and the way it affects his prospects for re-election will be uh, a big question here. And he is the majority uh, leader of the Senate, yes. and should he abandon Trump, it's over. then that would then provide a certain amount of political cover to other Republican senators to turn on Trump. If McConnell sticks with Trump, yeah. then it becomes that much more difficult for other Republicans to uh, to support uh, Trump's removal from office. Well, I won't hold my breath on that. Um, I think that uh, it, it does, I, it, it seems like, almost like, uh, I mean, Trump loves to intimidate his opponents and name call, which is incredibly childish, but he does it all the time. And, you know, there's been a lot of wondering, what the heck does Trump have on Mitch McConnell, I I don't know, but you're right. I mean, that's that's absolutely key. Just as it was during the Nixon time when certain people said, nah, "That's enough," that was it. And you know, frankly, I remember the Nixon impeachment days, thinking, "Hey, his and Kissinger's carpet bombing of Cambodia was far worse than the break-in and cover-up." Hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of innocents died, yet somehow it was all acceptable by the Washington crowd. I, I don't quite get that. It says something about what moves the power elite in our nation's capital. I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, I think you're overstating it. I don't think that, uh, that well, first of all, uh, a great deal of uh, the uh, bombing in Cambodia and Laos was done in secret. Yes, it uh, so was. We didn't have a, the public did not have a clear picture of what was going on until, until the facts were subsequently revealed. But that was a huge crime. But your broader point, I think, is correct. The public reaction to the brutality of the, of the bombing, not only of, uh, of the, the neighbors of Vietnam, but of, of North Vietnam itself, the public mm-hmm. outcry was, was real, but, but somehow limited. And it was much less than the outcry that uh, was uh, that resulted from the Watergate 
break-in. Why is that? Well, because I think many of our fellow citizens don't particularly get exercised about the bad things that befall people who are not Americans. Uh, even when the it's the United States which is the, the perpetrator, it would be nice uh, if there was a greater capacity for empathy for those who are not Americans, but I think that our capacity for empathy is probably fairly limited. Yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree with that, sadly, tragically. And uh, what you say here, and again from your article in Tom Dispatch, let me suggest that while Trump is being pursued, it's you, my fellow Americans, who are really being played. The unspoken purpose of impeachment is not removal, but restoration. And that leads, you know, that, that relates to what we were talking about here. It's like, you know, what what do people care about? What are some of the motivations that are going on? So, as you say, we're getting played, the people. The unspoken purpose of impeachment is not removal, but restoration. Okay, talk about that, if you would, please. Well, I mean, this is an idea that originated with uh, Professor Samuel Moyne of Yale, a brilliant article that he wrote in the Guardian uh, newspaper. And the argument basically is this. It's an argument that I endorse and that I was trying to expand on. And that is that the anti-Trump movement, the the insistence that uh, Trump is a source of all evil and has to be removed from the scene, uh, is driven by people who have their own agenda. And if we look seriously at that agenda, the implementation of that agenda has done far greater damage to the United States than anything Trump has done. And we're referring here to the, the, the center of the Democratic Party and the center of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. But they're really not that far apart. Yeah, you're right. And that's a, and that's a group that believed, for example, and probably still believe uh, passionately in uh, globalization. Open up the world economy. It's going to benefit everybody. Loosen the restrictions on investment banking. And that's that's the set of reforms initially instituted under President Clinton, but yes. continued under President George W. Bush that set the stage for the Great Recession that began in 2007. Great Recession cost millions of jobs. Great Recession cost millions of people their, their homes, uh, wiped out the lifetime savings of, of many others. Was a big story at the time, but basically has been shrugged off since, and virtually no one has ever been held accountable for that terrible sequence of events. And one could say the same thing, I think, about the Iraq War of 2003. Yes, It certainly was George W. Bush's war, conceived by Bush and the people around him, but it was also a war that centrist Democrats supported. Hillary Clinton famously voted for the war. Mm. John Kerry famously voted for the war. And that war resulted in an unbelievable catastrophe, not simply as measured by the number of Americans who were killed, the number of Americans wounded, several trillion dollars wasted, but equally important as measured by the hundreds of thousands of others who have lost their lives as a consequence of the violence that we instigated. And the... And nobody's been held to account. The instability that... uh, is pervasive in that region now. And again, you're right, and no one has been held accountable. The centrists, Moyne calls these people centrists, the moderate Republicans, the moderate, mm-hmm. moderately liberal Democrats. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about this. 
And talking about Trump is a way not to talk about the results of their governance in the pre-Trump era. And Moyne's point, and it's a point, point I agree, that therefore, in a, in a deeper sense, the effort to get rid of Trump is an effort to reinstall people who believe in those ideas, like globalization and, and militarism, that resulted in the catastrophes such as the Great Recession and the Iraq War. And those were the catastrophes that, in many respects, paved the way for Trump to become president. And in that sense, uh, the, for, for all their weirdness, and when the, when the pro-Trumpers talk about impeachment as a coup, right. that's a very inflammatory term. There is this small element of truth there. The object of the exercise is, from their point of view, is to remove from office somebody who they have always believed has no right to be in office. And in, and in making him go away, to make it possible for the people who ought to be president to once more claim that office. You know, people whose names are, are Clinton or people whose names are Bush and, and all of those who may have different names but are, oh, are, are in the same camp. Yes. And I think that is indeed what's going on. Uh, but uh, because all we can talk about is Trump and Trump and Trump and Trump, uh, the larger context pretty much gets ignored. Wow. Interesting points, for sure. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Andrew Basevich, uh, professor, historian. We're talking about uh, the real cover-up and, and some of the aspects of the impeachment spectacle that are kind of overlooked but are really, really important. There's just a significant power to that. It's not just, you know, removing a, a vulgar dishonest and utterly incompetent president, as uh, Professor Samuel Moyne, who you quote, uh, uh, says about him. But returning, and this is again from Moyne, returning to the apparent legitimacy of the Bushes and Clintons, the, like that there's some uh, correct order, some anointed path, as, as uh, Professor Moyne said, uh, that uh, think we're supposed to be on. Now, certainly, you know, there was no, I would have loved when when we finally ousted Nixon, I, it would have been nice had uh, we had McGovern as president. You know, if Nixon had said, oh, I'm sorry, but McGovern can have it. It didn't happen. We got Ford. <laughs> you know, but it's not about policy change, I guess. I mean, we, we still need to go full steam ahead with the impeachment. Do we not? I mean, there's some some aspects to it, as you say, are really troubling. You know, like like Hillary obviously felt entitled to it, and she still does. I don't know why she won't go away. But you know, what does this say about the power elites? Constantly? Well, this is. I mean, this is the dilemma I think we're in. Uh, yes, Trump is. He, he's not illegitimate, as right. Hillary Clinton would. Right. Uh, he's not. Would tell us. Right. But he is certainly incompetent and unworthy yes. uh, to serve in the office that we put him in. We, that is to say, enough Americans who voted for him for the Electoral College to give him a majority of, of, of votes. So he needs to go away. Yeah. Uh, I think my preference would be for him to go away as a result of an election, 2020. Hmm. But, that, but <laughs> my preferences are uh, ir irrelevant. <laughs> Things have developed to a point where 
This impeachment process is going to continue to unfold. We don't know what the outcome will be, but it's, it's going to happen. And frankly, I'm okay with that. But I deeply regret the fact that because impeachment becomes the dominant story, that there will continue to be no accountability right. uh, for events like the Great Recession and the Iraq War and everything that followed in the aftermath of those events. And therefore, there is this possibility that the Moyne hypothesis may turn out to be correct, that restoring the centrists who committed great crimes that didn't legally qualify as crimes, but the Great Recession and the Iraq War were crimes, there's a real possibility that they will end up being restored to power. And therefore, we will not only have learned nothing from the Trump experience, but maybe more importantly, we will have returned, learned nothing from how we got Trump in the first place. That is to say, those catastrophic failures of the American governing class that occurred during the first, you know, what, 15 years of the, of the 21st century. And that'll be a very sad outcome if that happens. Yes, that's true. Uh, we can't expect revolution from tossing him out. We just, it's, it's just not going to happen. And, and there are people, fewer, I hope, than in 2016, you know, the Bernie or Busters who say, well, if it's not Bernie, then I give up because we're just going to return to this uh, <clears throat> centrist Democrat-Republican normalcy. You know, to me, I don't know. We still have to toss the bomb out. We, we just have to do that, even though we're not going to get everything we want. But that may bring me to the right of many people on the left. And as it may have come clear, I have long believed that it wasn't so much Trump winning in 2016. And this talks about the establishment, the centrists having their way. But that election was about a loud rejection of Hillary Clinton and, and the same old, same old centrist. And you refer to Moyne's article in The Guardian. Trump's critics refused to admit how massively his election signified the failure of their policies from endless war right. to economic inequality. Now, right. if, if Trump is impeached and somehow convicted in the Senate, does that necessarily... I guess it does necessarily mean a return to the power of these old establishment elites. I think that is likely because, you know, the, 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 the establishment elites have certainly attracted plenty of uh, criticism to include some movements, you know, the Occupy movement. Uh, for a time, there was a brief time, there was a strong anti-war movement related to the Iraq war. So yes. there are people out there who before Trump appeared on the scene, were already protesting against the centrists. But none of that has resulted in some kind of a, of a permanent movement or a new, a new party, you know, a, a party that rejects the recipe of the centrists, of the Bushes and the Clintons, and is able to offer an alternative uh, basis for running our country. Uh, an alternative that could then command the support of millions of people. So we end up with a politics that is, okay, what do you want? Do you want Trump or do you want the centrists? Uh, and, you know, I suppose if I have to make a choice, I'll right. go with the centrists. But I don't like that choice. Yeah. I want a third choice. I want a third choice of a party that is genuinely committed to social justice, which has to include redressing the stupendous 
uh, economic inequality of our country. You know, I, I want I want a I want a party that is committed to peaceful engagement with the world beyond our borders. What a concept! And doesn't see military action as the preferred means of engagement, which is what we have right now. So we need a new party, but uh, it doesn't seem to me that there's much evidence that any such party is going to emerge uh, anytime soon, because the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have a lockhold on American politics, and yes. they have no interest uh, in allowing a, a third party to come into existence. Well, there was and still is the Bernie Sanders phenomenon within the Democratic Party. Uh, there were millions of people, you know, the whole populace. Yeah, I think, I think that's, you're, you're making a good point. And let us recall uh, that in the 2016 election, the centrists, the Democratic centrists, did everything they could to make sure that Bernie did not get the nomination. And it worked. That the chosen candidate, Hillary, uh, would be the one that would... You know, make make it into the into the general election, and I think the treatment of Bernie then uh, exemplifies uh, the strength of the centrists and their unwillingness to tolerate uh, any real departure uh, from the centrist program. Mm, true, no doubt about it. They hold on, and they uh, they feel like they own the party. Uh, maybe I'm naive here, although I've been around for a few decades, uh, that there are millions of people, I do think, you know, people ready for a change from this same old, same old centrist power elite in Washington and on Wall Street as well, that I think Bernie probably would have, I think he for sure would have won, quite frankly. But there are a lot of people like that. And the Democratic Party, obviously the Republicans as well, reject that energy and don't want to have anything to do with that. I want to push it aside. But maybe, I mean, the will of the people every now and then uh, can accomplish things. So, I mean, this is veering off the impeachment stuff, and we're looking at the 2020 election, but I think that's the only way to make real change here, that, you know, impeachment could obviously just return the uh, the status quo to the status quo, return it to power, but that's that's not everything. I mean, McGovern didn't become president after Nixon left. We, <laughs> we still have a lot of work to do, and people care about peace, I think. You know, I think a lot of people feel like, hey, you know, thrusting lead into the flesh of other people, there's got to be other ways of dealing with foreign policy. I don't know. Now, if people agree with you and want to, you know, bring about a change and not just, uh, you know, say, boy, this is done. We're all back to normal when uh, if Trump gets ousted and and it's a return to the uh, those who feel entitled to it. What can people do? You got suggestions? (laughs) Well, I'm I'm not leading a political movement, but, uh, you know, I am the head of a new uh, think tank. I'm not sure the country needs more think tanks, but w- but we got a new think tank called the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, and our purpose is to change U.S. foreign policy. Uh, our purpose is to move away from the emphasis on war and military power and to try to promote peaceful engagement, not isolationism, but engaging the world in in ways that don't necessarily... Uh, result in or encourage violence. That's a big agenda. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, and frankly, we welcome support. We need we need support. We need support not only people, uh, you know, uh, uh, reading our stuff, but candidly, we need support in terms of fun- financial support so we can keep our effort alive. 
whether or not our effort will actually end up making a big difference, I don't know. We're just getting started. Well, we have uh, to see... I certainly welcome anybody supporting the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And, of course, you can look us up online. We're online. It's like everybody's online. Of course. Well, thank you so much. Very interesting stuff. Always appreciate your uh, analysis from your uh, unique uh, perspective. And uh, hopefully... Okay, thanks a lot. Thank you. 